Welcome to Pontifex. <laughs> I'm Fry. That was the most somber. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It's actually pretty fitting. I'm not gonna lie. Uh, because this is episode 76, Pope Martin the First. Maybe somber is the way to go. <laughs> now, as we go through this whole process of doing the Pope things. There are certain Popes that we come to more than others that I come to and I go, I definitely want to do a good job presenting the information because the stories are so unique. And this is definitely one of those Popes. Well, we had set him up for a bunch of drama last week. Lots and lots of drama. But again, before we get started, because we are recording very close to our last recording, the same caveats are in place. We're sick. I'm so sorry if our voices sound a little weird. We are building a backlog for you. And the same caveat as last time. My dog, who was recently very sick, has decided to be himself to the max now, which means barking at everything that walks by. And my husband is not home to help him make shushes. So <laughs> if you hear him in the background, just be glad that he's a healthy boa now. So he's a good puppy who wants to bark. Yeah, he lost like 12 pounds, which is like a third of his body weight through this whole ordeal. So he's feeling sassy and <laughs> don't crash diet like that. That's terrible. But no, no. I was considering for a hot minute to go on the purple rubber ball diet. Oh my gosh, it was a ball of sticky tack, you guys, or something that looks like a ball of sticky tack. I still have no idea where it came from. I will curse sticky tack till the day I die. But um, Martin's gonna have a lot of things that he would like to curse until the day that he dies. Uh, so let's talk about him, shall we? I assume one of them is monophil, monof, monophon, monophon, monothelitism, ding. Monomena, bum, bum, On that note, Martin was born sometime in the last decade of the 6th century near Todai, which is in Perugia, Umbria, which is a region of Italy, and his father's name was Fabricius. Fabricious. Fabricious. I just enjoy that tremendously. So. That is the more aggressive version of Febreze. Well, I need that. Some of that for my stairs where said puppy made all of the vomits. That would be great. Give me some Fabricious. <laughs> the area of Todi that he was born in is now named for him, so it's called Pian di San Martino. You might guess that he's a little bit important. Martin's biographer, the Gallic monk Theoderic, tells us that Martin's family was noble and that he was intelligent and charitable. There's one source that suggests in his early church career he might have been an abbot of the Order of St. Basil, which is a monastic order founded on the writings of St. Basil, but the order itself wouldn't really exist even in its earliest forms for about another hundred years plus after the death of Martin, so... This one is clearly apocryphal. 
But what we can say is that he was almost certainly an abbot, but not likely of this order that won't exist in his lifetime. Also, the source cited for this fact that he was an abbot of St. Basil is someone called Piazza. And do you know how difficult it is to dig up someone with that name in Italian history? Sounds like it would be really hard. Yeah, Piazza just means, like, square in Italian, so, like, every street is Piazza something. There was no way. Your name is Square. Your name is City Block, really, like, whoops. It's just not gonna happen, so I tried. But, by the way, this episode is going to be full of tracking down weird, obscure things. So, right off the bat, I want to thank David of the Siecla podcast and Derek from the Hellenistic Age pod for helping me with some serious Google foo, because some of this stuff was the weirdest abbreviated sources that were so incredibly difficult to track down, and they were very helpful. Thank you, David and Derek, so much. But anyways, we know that Martin entered the church, and while serving as an abbot, he proved himself to be very, very trustworthy, because in 641, he was the cleric that was sent into Dalmatia and Istria by Pope John IV after the Avars had invaded and destroyed the region. We talked about this in John's episode, episode 74, but Martin's the one who actually goes and is the one carrying huge sums of money in a dangerous and unstable area so that he could ransom back prisoners of war and relieve refugees and support the church's effort to convert the invaders wherever they could. He's also the one who, when it was clear that the Dalmatian churches were in disrepair and weren't about to be rebuilt anytime soon, he brings back all of those important relics of saints and martyrs carefully back to Rome. So, clearly, he proved himself to be effective and capable. And because he had proved himself to be effective and capable, Martin was then sent on to the next big job that we've seen many of our current popes doing. He was sent to Constantinople by Pope Theodore to serve as papal apocrisary in 692. He served there for several years, but there isn't much more commentary about what he might have accomplished in that time, other than the fact that he was generally respected. However, what we can say is that, given how things are about to proceed in his life, Martin seems to have come away from this experience with a distaste for the East, especially with imperial interference and dominance in the matters of the church. He's, he does not enjoy the emperor having a hand in these things. Isn't he a baby still? He is a baby still, and this is why it's not unwarranted, because let's not forget what's been going on in the relationship between the church and the empire at this point. Pope Theodore had excommunicated both of the last two bishops of Constantinople for being monotheletes, and the empire had essentially ignored that, and then the emperor had passed that type of Constans forbidding any Christological discussion on the will or wills of Christ to suppress the Orthodox Church's efforts to stamp out monotheletism. And if Martin was chafing under the weight of the empire's imposition— he certainly wasn't the only one. Remember when we spoke about Maximus the Confessor? 
He was mentioned several times. He is the staunchly orthodox abbot that had debated Bishop Pyrrhus in Carthage and then convinced him to recant monothelitism, even if it didn't last very long. He'd even accompanied Pyrrhus to Rome after their debate and remained there afterwards, serving in Rome as a strong and influential voice against monothelitism and the type of Constans. He'd even worked with Pope Theodore to attempt to organize a council and corresponded with Martin, who was still very influential, on the dangers of the type and what it presented as a threat to orthodoxy. And so, according to historian Andrew Economou, when Martin returned from Constantinople to Rome sometime in 649, and then Pope Theodore died, it's Maximus the Confessor using his considerable influence in Rome to ensure that Martin is the guy to be elected the next pope, which he was on either July 5th or 21st of 649. And right away, as soon as he's elected, we see just how impactful this anti-Byzantine sentiment that he had would be. Because when he's elected, Pope Martin did something that many of the popes who had come before him would have never thought to do. Does it have to do with the emperor? Well, yes, it does have to do with the emperor. It has to do with something that usually happens right after elections that we've been talking about for ages. That thing where he has to say, yeah, you're the pope, baby. <laughs> exactly that. <laughs> and you know what he said? Yeah, I'm the Pope, baby. I don't need anybody to tell me otherwise. Yeah, he insisted that his consecration go ahead immediately. We're not waiting for imperial confirmation. The only other time in the whole of this era of the Byzantine papacy that we've seen the clergy consecrate without confirmation was Pelagius II, episode 65. And that was during the Lombard blockade of Rome, right? They couldn't get anybody in. They couldn't get anybody out. And they still waited four months. And as soon as they did it, and as soon as they could get someone out, they sent an explanation to the emperor saying, this is why we've done this. So this is a different circumstance. Martin is not waiting. And there is no reason that he couldn't have sent word for his confirmation. He's just like, no, I am not about that life. I am Pope. He didn't feel at all that the head of the church required a mandate from the emperor. This will literally make him the only pope during this era of Byzantine papacy not to have received imperial approval. All the other ones we've covered, and there's still quite a few to go, all have imperial confirmation, except Martin. So this is a very deliberate and conscious choice that he is making. And... When we look at Martin's first actions as Pope, we very much get the impression that the reason why he's opting to be consecrated without imperial consent has everything to do with the type of Constans and the Empire's attempt to push over the monothelitism controversy with silence. And this is because the first thing that Martin does when he's consecrated as Pope, without waiting for imperial confirmation, is to complete Pope Theodore's attempt to call for a council to be held at the Lateran to denounce and defy the type of Constans and officially denounce monothelitism. This is the Lateran Council of 649. 
some sort of music goes here. Uh, yeah, for sure. Probably mama na na This council is going to be a big deal for the church, and a very big deal for Pope Martin. Details. But first, importantly, we need to clarify, this council is not considered to be an ecumenical council, which is one of the few reasons that we're not doing a full bonus episode on it. But this isn't for lack of trying on part of Pope Martin. He very much tried to make it an ecumenical council. But we have to remember that every single ecumenical council that had come before it had been a council that was summoned by the emperor. And although the pope very much intended to send the canons of the council to the emperor for confirmation, he already knew that the emperor was very very unlikely to see things his way. So, again, we see him bypassing a convention that was just accepted to be within the authority of the emperor, and he takes church authority and church affairs into his own hands. As historian Andrew Economou puts it, this is a watershed moment in the primacy of the pope. We are seeing some very meaty papatum and phallium happening already. The council was held in the Basilica of St. John the Lateran in five sessions from October 5th to 31st of 649. He ended it just in time for Halloween. The council was overseen by Pope Martin and Maximus the Confessor, and although Martin earns the majority of the credit for undertaking the council, it's pretty well suggested that Maximus did the majority of the work. After all, he'd been calling for this council before Martin was even pope, and he'd been organizing with Pope Theodore for this very thing. And we do know that Maximus is the one who provides the authorship for the council canons. The council was attended by 105 bishops. The bishops were mainly from Italy, Sicily, Sardinia, and Africa. Which means there's no real presence from the East. And those present who were, quote-unquote, Greeks were the monks who had been in Rome for quite a while and pretty much served to be the token Eastern component. Some of the key figures at the council, aside from the Pope and Maximus, was Deus Dedit of Cagliari, Maximus of Aquileia, Maurus of Cesena, and Stephen of Dor in Palestine. Remember him? He was the one who Pope Theodore's father worked for. Ah, uh, yes. We're not going to go through the council session by session, but in general overview, the Pope spoke first, condemning monothelitism and the ecthesis and the type, and defended the doctrine of apostolic authority as espoused by Pope Leo at the Council of Chalcedon. So he's like, nope, we're condemning all of this. I am the Pope. I am the highest authority. Remember all of this. Then, the major church figures in attendance presented several treatises all denouncing monothelitism, including that token Eastern Greek monk section, because that's helpful. In the third and fourth sessions, many pro-monothelite writings were presented, including Theodore of Farron's letter to Sergius of Arsinoe and Cyrus of Alexandria and Sergius I of Constantinople. So they read them out, and then they argued against them, and then they condemned them. And in the final session, 161 Orthodox texts, including canons from the ecumenical councils, St. Cyril, Maximus the Confessor, and 20 other authors, were read out and confirmed as 
diophylletes, orthodoxy, anti-monophylletes, and the canons produced by the council were finalized and confirmed by the Pope on the spot. Now, as a side note, it's understood and mentioned in many sources that this council, for the most part, was just the public speaking of a handful of educated and influential bishops, and that many of the bishops in attendance were there only to listen and to bolster the end result. This wasn't people coming together to share their ideas. The ideas had been already established, and everyone was there to go hear, hear very loudly. Many sources seem to indicate that most of the bishops weren't even educated enough to understand the whole of the controversy, which might be true, but also seems like a pretty harsh evaluation. At its end, the council produced 20 canons written by Maximus the Confessor. And again, we're not going to read them all. They all exist. They're easily accessible. But frankly, we've heard most of them before because the first nine are just confirming all of the other Christological canons set by the other five ecumenical councils. Like, literally going back to the Nicene Creed, they are confirming all of that. It's not till canon 10 and 11 that we finally deal with monophyletism. I'll quote those two in full. Canon 10. If anyone does not properly and truly confess, according to the Holy Fathers, two wills of one and the same Christ our God, united interruptedly, divine and human, and on this account that through each of his natures the same one of his own free will is the operator of our salvation, let him be condemned. Canon 11. If anyone does not properly and truly confess, according to the Holy Fathers, two operations of one and the same Christ our God, uninterruptedly united, divine and human, from this that through each of his natures he is naturally the, the same operator of our salvation, let him be condemned. Get him. Yeah. Two wills, two operations, anathema to everybody else. So, Canons 12 through 17 read similarly, laying out condemnation for any who, quote-unquote, according to the wicked heretics, confess one will or operation of Christ in any variation, as well as condemnations for any who, according to the wicked heretics, deny the confessed to wills or operations of Christ, or do not properly confess to the doctrine according to the Holy Fathers. So they basically repeat what they've said already, just flipping it around. So one is, if you don't confess to two wills, anathema. If you confess to anything but two wills, anathema. Canon 18 is a massive and collective anathematization of all the heretics that have been condemned in the first five ecumenical councils, going all the way back to Sibelius and Arius, adding to the list the name of the prominent monothletes now being condemned. So we're condemning Theodora Farron, Cyrus of Alexandria, Sergius, Pyrrhus, and Paul of Constantinople, the writers and adherents of the ecthesis, the writers and adherents of the type, as well as anyone who does not agree with the full list and the whole of the anathematizations. So, unless an individual freely rejects all of the condemned names and their promulgated theories, they too will be anathema. This canon, canon 18, is crazy. It's a whole page of just people they're condemning. Canon 19 anathematizes anyone who would support the writings of men previously anathematized by this council, or any of the five ecumenical councils, 
and Canon 20 anathematizes anyone who would deny any doctrine passed by the five ecumenical councils. It's very thorough. Well, I mean, you gotta be, because if you get the one word wrong, then people are gonna be like, but what did it mean? Exactly. They they are confirming every single ecumenical council. They are condemning anyone who's even slightly wrong and saying, if you don't agree with all of our decisions, you also are anathema. It's the triple down, really. And through these canons, we can once again reflect on how seriously Pope Martin was working to align this council with the previous ecumenical councils. He's confirming the canons of all of them and recondemning the condemned as within the tradition, because he's like, yeah, this is going to be an ecumenical council. But the most important takeaway here for the moment is monophyletism, its authors, its decrees, its supporters were all clearly and definitively condemned as heretics. So Martin had the council's canons disseminated as far across Christendom as he possibly could. He sent them in conjunction with a papal encyclical in which he declared his confirmation of the canons and the assurance that they represented the faith of the universal church. This included sending a translated copy directly to Emperor Constance in Constantinople. Again, he's making very deliberate statements here. He's declaring he's the head of the church and will not be ignored in defending its orthodoxy, and that the issue of Christology definitely cannot be suppressed by a secular ruler. You do know that every time you say this, I picture Cartman yelling, Respect my authority! (laughs) Yeah. Is Martin the Cartman Pope then? I guess. I know that they've had popes on South Park, but I really would love somebody to make up a little Cartman Pope yelling, Respect my authority now. Listeners, go wild. That being said, he's done this thing. He's sent it directly to the Emperor. How do you think this went over for him? Well, I don't know. We got Baby Emperor, and I don't know if Baby Emperor is going to go straight Joffrey Baratheon on him and murder him, but, like, it probably didn't go great. See, so Constance, very much our Joffrey Baratheon for this moment, he gets a bunch of news at once. So a messenger shows up. Picture our messenger for us. He's looking really stressed. And he has to give the Emperor a whole bunch of news. First, he has to tell the Emperor that a Pope has been consecrated without confirmation. Oh, this poor man. Then he is being told that this Pope has held an ecumenical council without being called by an imperial emperor. Then he finds out that the thing that he asked everybody not to talk about is definitely all they're talking about. And now here's this new thing that the Pope is saying is religious law. Get on board, buddy. So he's furious. And he reaches out to his exarch in Ravenna, Olympias. And he says, go straight to Rome right now and arrest that man or kill him. Right now. Go get him. He's that mad. And Olympias arrived in Rome while this council was still in session. And... At first, he tried to do what a former exarch, Isaac, had done when Pope Severinus had resisted the ecthesis. He tried to 
stir up dissension in the people of Rome and draw up enough support for him and for the emperor so that they would factionalize and a mob ruled would force the council to end and the pope would have to submit. And that failed spectacularly. No one was willing to back him in this. Oh, boy. He decides he's going to try something different. He writes a letter to the Pope, and he says, The Emperor would like to reconcile with you and hear out the canons of your council. And in a show of goodwill, the Exarch is going to take Holy Communion from you. Because, you know, you're authority. But this was a ruse for his cunning plan which was to have his men kill the Pope while the Pope is administering Holy Communion. Oh boy, he does go Joffrey Baratheon on him. Straight up. But then, a miracle happened. Miracles. Because Martin agreed to this, and he welcomed the Exarch for Holy Communion, and as he prepared the Holy Communion, and Olympias prepared to kill the Pope. Divine intervention struck, and Olympias's man, who was to do the job, suddenly went blind. Um, what? Struck blind. So here's the Liber Pontificalis account. Olympias came to Rome and found the Holy Roman Church united with all the Italian bishops, sacerdotes, and clergy. He attempted to carry out his orders by using the army and tried to introduce a schism into Holy Church by force. This went on a very long time. Almighty God did not allow him to complete his efforts. Once he saw he was defeated by God's holy Catholic and apostolic church, he was forced to veer a little in his evil scheme as to achieve by stealth what he had failed to do by force of arms. His intention was to kill the Holy Pope during the ceremonies of Mass in the Church of the Ever-Virgin Mary, Mother of God, while he was giving him communion, and for this he had given orders to his Sparathius. But Almighty God, who casts a shield around his Orthodox servants and delivers them from every evil, blinded the Exarch Spatharius, and he was not permitted to see the pontiff distributing communion to the Exarch or giving him the peace as this would have caused his blood to be shed and God's Catholic Church to be subjected to heresy. This is what the same bodyguard afterwards avowed to different people on oath. And when you fail by divine intervention, you generally take the hint, right? Like, okay, that did not go as planned. God is sending me a message. Did his, did his eyeballs come back? Does that man ever get a sight back? I don't think they ever mention him again, so we have no idea if he just is forever blind now. God damn it. But Olympias got the message, and he left Rome immediately afterwards, and the Pope was unharmed. He's just like, nope, that I am out, no, God gave me a message, I'm not doing that. Guess we're not killing this guy. Emperor Constans, on the other hand, did not take the hint and refused to relent. So he just replaces Olympias as an exarch with another man called Theodore Calliopus, and he ordered him to arrest Martin and bring him to Constantinople. The new exarch arrived, and on the 17th of June, 653, he and his men storm the Lateran and demand to see the Pope. Now, unfortunately, at this point, Martin was quite seriously ill, and some sources suggest that he was bedridden. 
The exarch declared to the Roman clergy that by the order of the emperor, Martin was a traitor, under arrest, and deposed. Not pope anymore. Nope. In order to prevent violence, the pope refused to resist the exarch and actually went willingly with him. And in doing this, he refuses the members of the clergy that protest or want to come with him. He's like, look, no, this is not going to be a good time. You stay here. Do what you need to do. I'm, I'm just going to go. I'm sick. It's already bad. He took only very few attendants and was roughly removed from the Lateran to be put on a ship. And by the way, Maximus the Confessor was also arrested and taken away at this point. From Rome, the ship sailed to Naxos, which is an island in Greece, where most historians agree that the Pope was kept for a year. And all the time that he was kept there, he was being deprived of the basic necessities and constantly under physical abuse from the guards. It seems their goal was to break his will long before he even reached Constantinople, and that the reason that they stayed so long was that they were waylaid quite substantially by the bad weather on the Aegean Sea, or the Aegean Sea. He finally arrived in Constantinople on September 17th of 654, and his arrival was preceded by messengers who roused up the crowds in the city by declaring the arrival of a heretic and an enemy of state and an enemy of God, so that when the ship carrying the Pope docked in the harbor, he was greeted by a crowd ready to insult him and jeer at him, and since he was left on the deck exposed to the hostile crowd for hours, when he was already ill and exhausted and deprived, it must have been absolutely devastating and he was going to be put on trial. But the trial he was about to face was going to be anything but expedient, because he's not immediately brought before the emperor. He's hauled off and thrown into a prison called the Prandaria, where he was treated even worse than before. Oh no. From his own letters, we learn that his confinement was filthy and freezing, and the deprivation was worse than ever, and that the poor man was also suffering from dysentery. Oh no! During this time, he wrote, For 47 days I have not been given water to wash in. I am frozen through and wasting away with dysentery. The food I get makes me ill. But God sees all things, and I trust in him. And that was only halfway, because he's going to be kept there for 93 days. That's a long time. It is such a long time. It's not good. On December 19th, he was finally brought before a gathering of the Senate for his trial, where he was where he was not to be judged by the emperor, but in a show of total disrespect, he was judged by an imperial treasurer. He had to be carried into his trial on a stretcher, but they forced him to stand for the proceedings. But he was so weakened from his time in the prison that in order for them to stand as they demanded him do, he literally had to be propped up by his guards. Oh no. So he was accused of a number of things, including, oddly enough, being in secret contact with the Rashidun Muslim Caliphate, who they call the Saracens, which seems extremely unlikely. But all the charges are trumped up translations for basically going against the emperor and resisting the type. 
It didn't matter what they say. If Martin was able to make a defense, it was going to fall on deaf ears anyways. He was dragged from the place of judgment out into the street where a large crowd had gathered waiting and was publicly sentenced to death. According to an article on Martin from the Orthodox Church in America website, when he heard his sentence, Martin said, The Lord knows what a great kindness you would show in me if you would deliver me quickly over to death. But that's not how they do in Constantinople right now. And since they'd already been bent on humiliating Martin in every way possible that they could, they looked for the crowd to get involved in the condemnation by, like, shouting anathema on the old, infirm, condemned Pope. Yeah. But but the crowd is going, mm, I don't know if we want to do that. I don't think we want to shout to him. This is not what we want. They weren't about shouting and joining in, but they were content to watch while the Pope was stripped of almost all of his clothing, beaten and humiliated in the streets, thrown in chains, and dragged to an even more dangerous prison called the Diomede for another 85 days. The Catholic News Agency website. The Pope's appointed executioners stripped him of his clothes and led him through the city before locking him in a prison with a group of murderers. He was beaten so severely that he appeared to be on the verge of death. And this seems to have been the lowest point for Martin, because not only was he actively being tortured to the point of death, but because he received no help. Anyone who made an effort to support the Pope or send food or assistance was arrested as a traitor to the Empire. But it seems that Martin was never made aware that there were any efforts. The letters he wrote at this time mention how friendless and forgotten he felt by everybody. Now, at the end of this stretch of his captivity, the Patriarch of Constantinople, Paul, also happened to be dying. A lot more comfortably, but he also happened to be dying. Comfortably. Well, compared, compared to Pope to Martin. Yeah. And he seems to have had a change of heart over the incredible cruelty that was being shown to the Pope. From the same CNA article, I quote, In the midst of all this, the emperor went to the dying patriarch Paul and told him of the trial of St. Martin. He turned away from the emperor and said, Woe is me! This is another reason for my judgment. He asked that St. Martin's torments be stopped. The emperor again sent a notary and other persons to the saint in prison to interrogate him. The saint answered, Even if they cripple me, I will not have relations with the Church of Constantinople while it remains in its evil doctrines. The torturers were astonished at the confessor's boldness, and they commuted his death sentence to exile at Cherson in the Crimea. So finally, on March 26th of 655, Martin was taken from the Diomede prison and put on another ship, and they took him to Cherson in Crimea, which is now Kherson in the Ukraine, arriving on May 15th. And to make matters worse, when the ship arrived, Cherson was in the middle of a critical famine. So they sent this starving, dying, broken man into a place where there's no food. Not a good time. In his last letter, Pope Martin wrote that he not only separated from the rest of the world, but even deprived of the means to live. For this miserable body, the Lord will have care. He is near. What is there to alarm me? I hope in his mercy... It will not be long before it terminates my career. He succumbed to the torture 
and the starvation and the bad treatment dying on September 16th, 655 in Cherson. And by the way, we didn't follow Maximus the Confessor's fate through because he was tried at the same time as Pope Martin and sent into exile for four years. But then in 662, he was tried again and tortured and had his tongue and his hand cut off so he couldn't speak or write and was exiled again and then died in the same year. Not a good time for either of them. Pope Martin's body was not brought back to Rome, but buried outside Cherson in a Blackernay church of the Most Holy Theotokos, where his tomb was reported to have been the site of various unrecorded miracles. Because, of course it was, but undisclosed miracles. Miracles. Now, during the papacy of Pope Sergius II in the mid-9th century, Martin's remains were removed and finally transferred back to Rome to be interred in the Basilica San Martino ai Monte, which is not dedicated to him, but another St. Martin, Martin of Tours. And because he was moved, there's no record of an epitaph on his tomb, and it's still thought that he's probably in the high altar of San Martino, which also houses relics from a couple of the other popes we've discussed, like Soter and Sylvester and Victor and Fabian. For the most part, he seems to be in good company. So that is the very dramatic life of Pope Martin. How are you feeling? I mean, mm, he tried. He tried really hard. And when we started this episode, you were very somber. And now you see how appropriate that was. It was frighteningly appropriate. Let's rate this man. Papatum infallium. He was consecrated without the confirmation of the emperor. So he's taking a huge stand for papal primacy. He disobeyed the type gag in order to hold the Council of the Lateran to defend against monothelitism. The canons of this council, by the way, will be confirmed in an ecumenical council in the future, which is the third council of Constantinople in 680. So his efforts will entirely be vindicated. And so will the efforts of Maximus the Confessor. He never relented his position, despite over a year of torture, starvation, and violence. And he fought against heresy until it cost him his life. And he is hugely, hugely revered in the church for his suffering in defense of the orthodoxy, called one of the noblest of the papacy. He's considered to be the final martyr pope which makes him hugely significant. His legacy is far-reaching, and he makes an appearance in an encyclical of Pope Pius VII, published in 1800, called Diusatis, about returning to the gospel. And I'm going to quote this to end this category before we rate him. Indeed, the famous Martin, who long ago won great praise for this see, commends faithfulness and fortitude to us by his strengthening and defense of the truth and by the endurance of labors and pains. He was driven from his sea and from the city, stripped of his rule, his rank, and his entire fortune. As soon as he arrived in any peaceful place, he was forced to move. Despite his advanced age and an illness which prevented his walking, he was banished to a remote island and repeatedly threatened with an even more painful exile. Without the assistance offered by the pious generosity of individuals, he would have not had food for himself and his few attendants. 
Although he was tempted daily in his weakened and lonely state, he never surrendered his integrity. No deceit could trick, no fear perturb, no promises conquer, no difficulties or dangers break him. His enemies could extract from him no sign which would not prove to all Peter that until this time and forever lives in his successors and exercised judgment is particularly clear in every age, as an excellent writer at the Council of Ephesus said. There's a lot here. Yes. This is the resistance and the absolute defense of the primacy of the papacy. It could be a full 20. It could. However, he was then arrested, deposed, exiled, and tortured, which doesn't say authority very well. We're back to the church in its earliest stages here. How do you feel about it? Well, I was leaning towards like a seven or eight. Seven or an eight. I think that's pretty good. Um, Which one do you want to give him? Maybe a seven. Okay, if you're going to give him a seven, I'm going to give him an eight because he is absolutely massive. And I think a score of 15 is very fair for him. Fructus prohibitum. If we're going by the Empire standards, he's a traitor and an enemy of the state and the enemy of God. So that's that's something. But in terms of actual scandal, nah. not. It's got to be a zero. Seculari impactum. This could go one of two ways. One, it could be bad because the clearly horrible relationship he had with the Empire and how it went for him. Or it could be good because Martin was standing up for his people. He represented a growing public sentiment in Rome against Byzantine intervention and dominance, not just in religious issues, but after what happened to him, this sentiment grows clearer and clearer in Rome and most of Italy. They're tired of the empire sticking their fingers in and making things worse for them. In this way, he is fighting for the secular people who don't otherwise have a say. What do you think? Good or bad? I don't know. I was, uh... Hmm. You know, that's probably good. It'll help in the long run, but maybe like a two. Are you going to give him a two? I'm going to give him a five because I want to be, again, pass-fail on this. He did really poorly with the emperor, but the emperor's not the only type of secular impact that someone can have. So good for the people, bad for the emperor, half marks. It's a seven. Fossium Sanctus. This man is, again, very famous in the church, so this is one of those people we have lots of images to look at. But first, the one we write. There is nothing remarkable about that. He's got very small ears. His eyes look like a man who have been tortured forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, he doesn't look withered or, like, beaten in a way, but he does look like a tortured man. Does that Does that make sense? He's seen some He has seen some So, I don't know. This is a tough one. His ears are very small. Um, you know, I'll give him a flat five. There's nothing up or down about him, honestly. Okay. The bitty ears are a little weird, but like... It gives him a little bit of character. So he'll get a 2.5 in this category. I think that's pretty fair. So, here's a couple more images. Here's one that's definitely a modern version of the image. That looks nothing like that man. It looks, and not only does it look nothing like this man, it's, there's another pope in the future who I think they've just 
taken a photo of and then like maybe changed one or two things to try and make it Martin. That's definitely Cartman though. <laughs> it is Cartman. Put respect my authority on that one. Okay. We will do that because that's a, a thing that we should do. I have to figure out how to do that aside from MS Paint. So MS Paint. It's got a lot more features than it used to back in the old days. I'm going to send you some Eastern images here because he is depicted quite a lot in the East, surprisingly, considering that they were the ones who, you know, made him dead. This one's so regal. It's very regal. I like it's. It is like, reminds me of St. Nicholas very much. Mm -hmm. His hand is very bitty compared to his face. His face is so serious. Oh, it's very serious. And his neck must be tremendously long for it to sit that way. I like it. If we were rating on that one, I'd give him a lot more. The other two are just kind of whatever. But this one, if we were rating on, I'd give him more. That one has a trilobite for a beard. Yeah, he definitely does. That's only you would see that. (laughs) I love you. So now I'm going to show you a picture from the Saint-Apollinaire Nuovo in Ravenna. And this image is called the Court of Martyrs. It's got Saints Martin, Clement, Sixtus II, and Lawrence. So three of our popes and St. Lawrence. And Sir Fried in a Pan. Yes, and Sir Fried in a Pan. Is he the one with the pan? Is that a pan? What's he got? That's definitely St. Lawrence at the front. Does he have a pan? Is that what he's carrying? I think it's supposed to be a crown of martyrdom. It kind of looks like a pan, yeah. Which would be very rude. I guess they all got crowns. Yes, they all have crowns because they've got a halo on their head, but they got their hats for another look. Party hats. That's a It's a neat image to see some of our popes appeared together because they've all been martyred. So, you know, extra bonus points. Which one's supposed to be Martin? Uh, he is the one on the end with the gold robe on. Oh, he gets to be fancy. He's the fancy one, because the other ones are considered, you know, they came from a more ancient period. Clement is is the one who is next after, because St. Lawrence is wearing the dark robe. Uh Uh-huh, St. Lawrence has a pan. (laughs) (laughs) Looks like he has a pan. Then we have Clement, then we have Sixtus II, and then we have Martin. So there's that. Tempus Pontificus. July 21st, 649, to September 16th, 655. Six years and a score of 1.5. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Considering he was a martyr for the faith, and the fact that we have already discussed miracles happening in his tomb, it's no surprise that yes. I thought you were going to bait and switch me. You're going to be like, I'm sorry, I guess he's not a saint. At some point, at some point, I'm going to have to do that now. So yes, he is a saint, definitely. He's known as St. Martin the Confessor, the last martyr pope. Oh boy, is he a saint. The last martyr pope? So we don't get any more murdered popes? Is that a lie? It's got to be a lie. What's happening here? I will distinguish between martyr pope and murdered pope. (laughs) Okay. Difference. His feast is a little bit complex. It's traditionally been celebrated on November 12th, which commemorated the date of the transfer of his relics from Crimea to Rome. But since the 1969 revision of the Roman calendar of the saints, he's now celebrated on April 13th, which they say is the formal anniversary of his death. And yet, all of the sources say that he died on September 16th. 
We're going to go by what the Roman martyrology says and credit him with April 13th. Now, shockingly, he is not the patron saint of anything. How? Which is wild to me because he's huge in the church. But then again, Leo was not a patron saint of something. So what would you like to make this man the patron saint of? Respecting your authority. (laughs) I knew it as soon as I said it. All right. I think that that is perfect. But now we have to ask if he is papally enough and pizzazzy enough with an impact enough for a papal bull. Fry don't make me fight you. I'm leaning no. I'm sorry. What? I'm leaning on the no. This is St. Martin the Confessor, the last pope to die for the faith, and you're saying no? Ooh. Ooh, Fry. We are going to divine intervention for this one. Okay, I gotta go get my bag. Find your Cartman-esque most die. I don't... I don't know. What are you picking for St. Martin? Um, let me figure out if I can actually find a D20 in here. I have one, if you don't. I mean, I have several, but... I would be really surprised if you couldn't find one, because, you know, you are you. D20. (laughs) A D20, please. Here's one. What does it look like? It is a sort of silvery color with some purple and a sort of swirled all together. Cool. Okay, don't roll it yet. We will remind everybody, while when we come to divine intervention, if you roll a 1 to 10, that is a no. If you roll an 11 to 20, it is a yes. I can't believe we're doing this for Pope Martin Fry, but let's have it out. All right. Uh, (laughs) He got a nat 20. Ah, He's going straight to the final. Yay, good job, Martin. I think, you know what? That's better than the divine intervention of striking you blind, I think. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. St. Martin has pulled off his latest miracle. Congratulations, Martin. I am going to have to put a note next to your name that you are our first Nat 20 winner. So there's that. Congratulations. Ha. Are you sending me a picture of it? I did. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, I kind of want to post that on our social media and be like, Ooh, with no context. So <laughs> that's what I'm going to do after we finish recording this. So on that note, uh, we have some thank yous to make. And since we're recording as often as possible right now, we did a bunch of thank yous the other day. So we're just going to thank Totalis Frankium and Rex Factor for being our inspiration. We're going to thank the guys from Grim Reading who reached out to us with some very exciting and interesting fairy tale information. And if you're not listening to them, do the thing, because it is awesome. And also listen to Drunk Church History, which we will be appearing on at the end of March. So do that thing, too. Thank you for listening, and goodbye. Bye! (laughs) 